This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Mike Schropp. Mike was uh, one of the first veteran artists that stood out to me on Instagram because his work was just fucking awesome. Um, I love abstract work, and Mike is a, yeah, I'll say a master of the abstract. He does it in so many different media, uh, using so many different materials. But what was most compelling to me in talking to him was how that beautiful work that he has created has been built on the shoulders of Iraq and Afghanistan combat deployments, um, very relatable marital struggles, struggles of a family, you know, surfing combat tours um, with young children, uh, built on, you know, a life full of false starts and wrong turns and dead ends and all that. Um, but leading to this absolutely beautiful capstone of creating really world-class work uh, that you all should know about. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Mike Schropp's Profile in Havoc. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, how's it going, Chris? Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, I'm glad I could have you on. So, I, you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this um, in prep for the show. I think you might have been one of the first people I started following when I got on Instagram because I think I like went to the hashtag of like veteran artists. Like I, I've been on wow. social media for so long. That I was like, I don't know who the fuck is out there. I don't know what what goes on, or what the ecosystem looks like for veterans in the arts at all. And I think you had you're like pretty religious about hashtag veteran artist for a lot of your stuff. And I think I I saw that and I was like, damn, I was like, there's some good shit out here. And I started following you, 
And I kind of never stopped. And then I never reached out about doing the podcast or anything, but you're just kind of like always there lingering in my feed um, with <laughs> really cool content that you kept pushing out. So I feel like this has been a long time coming, even though we only set this up kind of recently. Yeah. Well, I, I, uh, it's funny you mentioned that because I was talking to my best friend about that recently after you reached out to me to do this podcast. And I said, and it's funny also because somehow I, I've lost my ability to have a Facebook account for reasons I can't imagine. But so I just have Instagram to kind of promote my work. And I had been putting hashtag veterans, hashtag veteran artists on all yeah. my work for uh, as long as I've been doing it, because for the rest of my life, I'll probably always first identify with my service time in some way and i feel an obligation to the people that continue to serve and things like that and i wanted to always be representative of that and i didn't know if if it would ever do anything positive in return for me to you know put that on there each time uh it gets pretty easy when it knows that i'm going to do it i just hit hashtag v and you know pops up right right uh but you reaching out is like the the first evidence that that's actually reached people <laughs> that yeah. I was trying to reach with it, that that message worked somehow, some way. And so that was very validating. And um, so, you know, thanks. Well, I'm thrilled. No, listen, I'm, I'm thrilled. And I'm, um, I mean, I thought I'd mention it because shit, I think more people should follow that hashtag. I think that's, it's worth of people paying attention to what comes out there. And I hope more veterans, that are doing stuff use the hashtag because i think it's a it's a great a great way to kind of get hip on what's going on um in the community it, well Let's, i think so i think so for sure and it, it, i i also think that like um you know I, I i wouldn't be what i am now if i hadn't been what i was then so to speak yeah. and uh i wouldn't be an artist that's just it and and uh I needed the things that I've been through to kind of, that was, I don't know if it was my uh, caterpillar form or chrysalis uh, or whatever, but, uh, you know, to kind of yeah. like find myself where I am today, it required that. So, yeah, I, I hope more people will do that as well. So we just jumped to the epiphany part of the interview um, way oh. too soon. No, listen, that's, it's great. You know, it's, it's funny. It's taken me however many episodes we've done of this now <clears throat> to figure out that I think that's, I think that's right. I, I think that's that's not unique, nor should it be unique. Um, I think that's that a lot of the times. It's funny. I was having lunch the other day with this guy who was not a veteran, but was interested in veteran artists. And like I think a lot of civilians, he started off by framing everything about veterans in kind of a. Um, and this, I know I get that this is a loaded term these days, but he started off by framing it in kind of a victim mindset terminology and everything was, you know, what can we do to make things whole and blah, blah. And, and obviously there's some validity to that, but some, I would say, uh, but what I, what I talked to him about was what we've learned on this podcast. I think more and more <clears throat> is how it's a multi-step process. And sometimes you need those years, good, bad, or ugly in the military because without it you wouldn't be the unique artist that you become and how crucial that is to go through that as you said chrysalis state and have those experiences and that is 
the depth, the resonance, the poignancy of the work you do. And that's fascinating that you think that and have seen that right now. And I feel like we just jump right to the end of the interview. But yeah, that's, oh, yeah, that's fucking great. Dang, yeah, I was, right. I was hoping to take up most of your afternoon. But um, no, <laughs> I should have slow rolled that one. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I guess what I was trying to say with that, though, is that uh, by representing, you know, with the veteran artist thing on Instagram and all that, I think that like because of my unique experiences and everybody's experiences are unique, but because of my per- particular perspective on the world around yep. me and the things that I've gone through, the trials, tribulations, you know, a lot of the suck. Um, but it gave me the freedom and perspective to be the kind of artist I am and my, the kind of artist I am. I, I freely like it's almost cool in our world today, I guess, to be a bad artist in a way. Um, but I, I kind of give myself the liberty just to do it and not give a shit. Uh, and, and I know that I earned it to a certain degree to get to be this, you know? And, and, uh, so even though, believe me, this is not a, uh, a cash cow project that I'm engaged in. I'm not, I'm not a successful artist by the terms of you know, financial success, but I am liberated and I feel that what I do matters. And like, uh, and I feel that m- the way my mind works makes cool stuff. I, I make cool visual phenomena, you know, and uh, a joke I have is that I make visual art for the visually impaired um, because sometimes you got to kind of like, glass out and stare at it you know maybe uh yeah you know and just uh kind of like take an adventure in my paintings and 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 that i think is a byproduct of where i started from because when i started painting you mentioned kind of a victim mentality i think i was trying to exercise a lot of yep like really negative stuff and a lot of my early work that i did and i don't even know if i shared most of it is uh pretty pretty dark like sinister mm. like demons almost mm. and uh and and i got you know you, you evolve as a painter for one thing but or as a visual artist but i i think it helped me work through that i kind of work beyond that now but i have that in my toolbox you know i have that kind of darker yeah. element to my, my my work and it's all informed by my my experiences you know this is i uh, i I love and track everything you're saying. Um, I love it because I, I I think it's such a healthy way for an artist to progress and to be self-aware of like what you're capturing. But, um, but also I, uh, it makes so much sense that you're saying this, seeing your art. I, I think my first like proper formal question for you is how do you describe yourself as an artist? Cause it, you've worked in a lot of different media and you've worked in a lot of different styles. So how do you see yourself as an artist? How would you define yourself? Um, that's a tough one, really. But I, I guess, uh, like, I'm not, I don't make um, fine oil paintings of, you know, like, I'm, I'm not a classical 
style painter. I, right. I make um, abstract art by mm -hmm. and large. Sometimes I do some landscapes, but even they're very abstracted, yes. uh, kind of fantastical landscapes. Um, I, what I do, I, I kind of compare it to, uh, like rustic cooking or like jazz, you know, like it's, it's almost like, uh, state of mind, like free flowing, just, uh, I will, uh, just, I, I the worst thing in the world to me is a, is a blank white canvas. And mm. it, it drives me nuts because I never know what to paint. And if I never get over that hurdle, then I'll never make any progress on this next yeah. painting. So I'll have this giant white canvas that stares at me from across the room, daring me to, you know, uh, soil it by putting a, a mark on it. And so what I got to do is I just got to get in there and I mess it up. I just start putting paint on the canvas yeah. and nine times out of 10, I paint over whatever I just painted. But every time I do that, I'm scarring up the surface of that canvas with my heavy body acrylic paints and stuff. And by doing that, I sit there and, and kind of do that, you know, uh, visual art for the visually impaired thing where I just let my focus kind of drift out. And I just see the lines that I've made, even though it's white on white, I see the lines, I see huh. maybe a little bit of color from what's underneath. And I, and I just start seeing things to, to kind of render out. And as I continue to render, I, I, the ideas multiply exponentially and I just go from there. And so I don't know if that answered your question. No, that's well, first off, this is, I, I don't know how common that is. I don't think first, I've heard common. of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't think, think it's, it's common, common at all. So yeah. all your work then literally is textured. You're, you basically it's, have it's scar got tissue. A lot to do. Yeah. It's, it. it's scar tissue. It's texture very much. So, yeah. Uh, and I, I won't say that, you know, my, uh, Art professors at college loved it or anything like that, but because nobody does, nobody like does said, that. Nobody does yeah. what I do. Yeah, well, it's, it, it's, well, it's, like you're, it's like you're painting in drafts. It's like you're painting in drafts. Like here's my first draft, and now maybe yeah. I take five percent of that, will end up in the finished product. But it's like just the topography changes or whatever. But that's sure. your process is working through right. the draft, right? Yeah, yep, that's it. That's and, and fucking wild. Holy yeah, shit! A, wow. a lot of time, a lot of times, I'll think, you know, I'll have four or five days work into a painting and just realize that I have lost the muse with it. You know, like yeah, we went, we yeah. went wrong. We should take a left, left at Albuquerque, you know, like, uh, and then I got to fucking paint over it. That's hard. And it's wasteful. Wow. I, you know, I waste <laughs> more paint than I probably, uh, you know, is on the surface of my canvas for everybody to see, but it's my process. It's the well, only you're, way you're, I know how yeah. to do it. You're like a writer. You're, you're, you're yeah. going to write a lot more words that'll never see the light of day mm -hmm. than you would ever actually, you know, end up using. That's yeah, that's fascinating. Um, how much pressure? Well, first off, how often do you churn out new finished pieces? Do you, um, is it, is it a long, slow process for you or is it something I, that really comes out of a holster at this point? No, it doesn't come out of a holster at all. And and each time I start a new painting, I feel like I've never done it before. <laughs> um, and I just trust that by you know, I, I'm buried alive in proof to the to the contrary that I have done it before and that I know how to make something look cool. Yeah. Uh, but 
I just uh, usually I'd say two weeks. I, I like to work okay. in a particular size. I, I do three foot by four foot canvases is my favorite to work with. I, I do bigger. I do I do smaller, but most of my pieces are pretty big, which can be a hindrance to you know getting in galleries and things like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, mm-hmm. or just prohibitive you know cost to me sure. and to any potential buyer. But um, it usually takes me about two weeks, but it can take, I mean, that's to have like the last edit done. And then I might spend two more weeks touching it up while I'm starting a new one, you know? And so, but I'm, I'm constantly painting, you know, like 10 hours a day, every day. And I, holy crap. I, yeah, I mean that, you know, there's, a lot of time in those 10 hours is waiting on paint to dry. So it's not always super labor intensive, but, um, and I've been doing that since, I don't know, 2015, I guess. And so it now with that size painting and, uh, if that's my, you know, what I usually do, I'd say usually two to two weeks to a month to turn out a piece. And do you, um, are you tunnel visioned on it or do you, multitask you have three or four or five different pieces you're working on at any given time i usually have one piece that is my primary piece that i'm working on and the piece that i just finished will be leaning against the wall in the (laughs) living room across from my recliner for me to just stare at and see if i can find something about Uh, it that i would like to make a little better wow yeah What's so usually, usually flash the bang it. with that? Do you do you do you give it a couple months before you fully are like okay, I get ready to let it go? Well, or here's the problem: letting it go is harder for me than I would like. I would like to be able to let it go to a a good home that would pay me for it. Um, but you know, I I don't have the uh, right now in my career. I I, I I'm not moving enough paintings yeah. to be quite honest, and so yeah. I. I am buried alive in my own home by my work. So if I really like a painting right now in front of my chair, there's actually three, three foot by four foot paintings leaned up against the wall, against the fireplace, staring me in the face and across the room is the painting I'm working on. Yeah. Oh my Lord. Okay. So I got to ask about the, um, the work itself. Um, I have seen your work evolve and I don't know even know if evolve is the right word. I mean, I'm sure you probably noticed differences or improvements that you've made technically or something like that, but I, I, I don't mean that. I mean, just the subject matter, the style of your work constantly changes. It seems like it seems like, you know, you've done charcoals. It looks like yeah. you've even done sculpture, but then even when it comes to painting, you have your kind of abstract landscapes but then you have pure Pollock-esque abstract, and it seems like you go through phases and like the ones that are, and I'm going based off purely off Instagram, but I mean, the most recent iterations are these very cool abstract faces. Um, what's going on? What is your process that you pivot and kind of just saturate a certain medium or a certain subject matter or a certain style? Like, is that how intentional is that? Or how much does that, do you just look back and go, oh, oh, I just pivoted and ended up doing 
12 paintings on this or that are well, derivative of this. The the thing is, yeah, I that's the problem is I don't want to be derivative of what I did last time. You know, huh. the worst thing is to be derivative of yourself, you know, like, huh. uh, uh, and I, so sometimes I feel like I need to break out of a box and that's usually when you'll see those landscapes popping up. Cause like I said, I'm not, I don't, okay. I probably could, uh, if I wanted to take the time, suck the joy out of what I do and suck the, the, my artistic contribution, the thing that is me about any of my work, I could make, you know, some pretty, uh, still life, you know, that yeah. looked great by yeah. the standards of still life, but right. it would be really hard for me because it's just not, I don't have the attention span. I don't have the bandwidth for that. I, uh, so when I, am kind of evolving back and forth from the more just kind of abstract work to, you know, some things that are kind of landscapes, if abstract landscapes, if that's a thing, but um, is it's more just me trying to not get stuck, you know, and, and to keep my limbs loose uh, so that I'm not becoming stale, you know, I yeah. got to keep, I got to keep flexibility as I, you know, I'm just turned 44. And so, uh, yeah, physically I know enough about how important it is to, you know, keep flexible and keep my mind supple for innovation. I always want to try to innovate something even cooler, something even better than what I've done before. So, so. when, how accurate is your Instagram? Is it that you are, are, do you really upload pictures of work as it's done or do you kind of aggregate similar themes and post them on Instagram in relatively, you know, in, in roughly the same time span? Because the way no. it looks on Instagram, it looks like you kind of are going through these very defined phases. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I, I mean, I can tell you this. I am a liar to all of my followers on Instagram because yeah. I will always post a painting and be like, okay, I'm done, guys. And and whenever I do that, I feel like the need to go delete the history of all the previous, um, you know, in progress paintings that I've, you know, that same piece. Yeah. Because I don't want anybody comparing it and being like, well, I liked it better. Um, wow. you know, and, wow. and so, yeah. so I'll say, okay, I'm done. And it's almost always a lie. And I always, and then, and then somebody hit me up and they'll say, Hey man, I'd like to buy that piece. And I'll be like, Oh shit. Well, it doesn't huh. look like that anymore. You know, like, you know? Oh, yeah, it's, 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 and so, uh, and sometimes I'll post, you know, I'll delete that. Okay. I'm done one. And I'll come back with, okay, I really made it this time. And then. Oh. I'm about 50% honest then. Yeah. Oh but it's just God. because I can't wow. help myself. I'm kind of a, you know, I'm, I'm very, uh, compulsive. I can't really help it. Okay. We got to start at the beginning then. So where do you live now? I live in Eugene, Oregon. Okay. Are you from yeah. Oregon? Are you from the Pacific I, Northwest? No, no. I grew up in Alabama. I, I was, okay. I was, yeah, I was, uh, Born in Iowa, but I, I grew up, spent my life from the years five until I was 27 when I joined the military uh, and uh, in Alabama. Where? Where in Alabama? Um, town called Opelika. It's adjacent to Auburn. That's where I got my first degree from was Auburn University. And then okay. I 
got out of school and uh, kicked around. I was selling radio advertising and bartending and raising hell and getting in trouble. And uh, finally decided I was going to either end up dead or in jail or something. And I, you know, I, I wasn't good at selling radio advertising. Um, so I, yeah, I got really inspired and uh, joined the military. Okay. Well, before we get to that, I want to, I, I want to walk through each of those, those uh, pivots, but first as a kid, were you at all artistic? Did you, it was, yes. was art in your purview yeah i i was always artistic um okay. not i i wouldn't say i was like ever like the best artist in my class like when it came to drawing and things like that but i was very competent um but it was also something that it's kind of weird you, you know these faces and you've seen the recent work i've put out there that have a lot of lines you know intersecting yeah. and and things like that that was something I I would just sit there with a stack of paper. It was kind of like doodling. And I just make lines until cool shapes emerge to me and, and kind of render them out like I do now. So Holy what shit. I'm doing now yeah. is the most back to basics uh, kind of just kind of like doodling, but in large scale and with paint, you know, uh -huh. and and uh, so. That's why I feel so really good. Yeah. yeah it's, well, it's, it's, it's funny. It's like that definition of education. I, I don't know if this is the definition, but I, I think there's a definition of education that says uh, education is not learning more. It's, it's stripping away layers to see what you actually are. And yeah. it seems like, you know, it's taking you this whole long journey to come back to those basics that you started artistically with. Yep. And, it, and, but come back with so much more maturity and depth and, resonance and all that was art something that was important to you as a kid was it something that you naturally gravitated towards and found yourself wanting to do on your own or was it a coping mechanism or was it forced upon you through art classes i mean what was no, the process it, it, i i definitely always loved art in all its forms really like uh i'm a huge cinephile i i love culinary arts i love huh. uh yeah. i love poetry uh Pros, you know, I am, I am all about the arts. To be quite honest, like, and that's always been who I am. I just never knew it. I think. You where know did what that? I mean? Yeah, where did that come from? What was your exposure to it? Why did? Why was that at all in your gravitational hole? Jeez, um, I, you know, it probably. I mean, I can remember when I was a kid. My mom would have me. You know, maybe I'm bored on a rainy day or something she'd always break out the watercolors and things like oh. that and and I, I you know i'd kill a few hours to that but i don't think that's really and i think that actually painting is probably one of the least likely art forms that i would have ended up choosing to dedicate my life to um because like for instance my my first degree i was going to college as a film student um huh. It was it was radio, television, film was named my major, and uh, I had a, I thought I had an internship with Miramax lined up. Wow! It was going to take me places, and it it fell through, and I ended up working at a local TV station as an intern and things like that. Wow! And lot and life kind of pushes you around where it wants to go. Uh, when I went back to college the second time at the University of Oregon, I I. Uh, 
I was really just doing it to take advantage of the benefits that uh, the um, vocational rehab program offers. And and somehow or another, I'm, I'll, I'll probably be the only guy in the history of vocational rehab to get an art degree um, because that's not what the program is right. designed for. Right. But I, I managed to con my way through that. And uh, thank you to the vocational rehab people. But um, anyway, and and even in college, like I, I was awarded a poetry scholarship to do this uh, poetry thing and they wouldn't the VA wouldn't fund me taking classes that didn't yeah. specifically drive yeah. towards my degree. So I didn't sure. pursue that. And maybe that's a blessing because it made me really focus on these art classes that I was taking because the idea was I was going to take this metal smithing program because I didn't know what the hell that was. I just thought I could tell them that it would allow me to do body work on cars. Right. right and that right, was right. the last thing I ever intended to do. I just wanted to, I, yeah. like, I have a fascination with knives. I thought it might teach me stuff about metallurgy and things like that, yeah. but that's not what that program offered. So I was went back to this counselor after I've enrolled in school, I'm a art major. And I'm like, I don't want to do those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's not going to yeah. teach me. We were wrong. Like, I was making her share the responsibility so she would hear me. I was like, we were wrong. <laughs> hey, we 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 were giving it a good try. But I do want to keep doing this. And I'll tell you what I want to do. I, I If I get a bachelor's degree, I'll still have time enough to go get a master's degree. And then I can get a job teaching because that's what that program is designed to yeah. do yeah. is to get you a job. And so I was like, so what do you say? Just, you know, six more years, stick with me and and this all be worth it. And so I got to do that. And, you know, the problem is then you need to, you know, go to grad school, which I have yet to do. I have applied to a grad school, didn't get in. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll try that again one day, but I'm kind of wrapped up in what I'm doing right now. But if well, Yale comes calling, I'm here. I got you. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um. Well, we'll get to your future prospects because I, I, I. I have questions and I have strong opinions about yeah, me too. Where, what I think your, your future should hold. I, I, I think, I, I think there's a huge market for what you do, but we'll get to that in a second. Um, so, okay. So as a kid, what was your focus? Was it, was art the preeminent focus or were you, was it like something you enjoyed? You, you had an affinity for, but you were really all about sports or school or oh, something yeah. else. No, I was about sports. And okay. I mean, I was always, uh, you know, an honor roll student my whole life until, huh. I, got to co- until I got to college the first okay. time. Yeah. But that, that's a whole nother story. But um, I I was uh, I was very into sports. I, I loved baseball, but I, I don't think I matured as fast as a lot of the other boys, you know. And and I kind of got left behind a little bit in baseball. And, and my dad's best friend was a tennis pro and I'd taken lessons from the time I was seven. So I played high school tennis. Uh, I played uh, like, you know, rec league baseball. And I, I played, uh, I quit tennis because I hated tennis and uh, my senior year played golf, which I was also no good at. I mean, I was okay at tennis, but I, I, I suck at golf, but I at least enjoy golf. And uh, but yeah, I played sports. But I mean, by the time I was 13, I think my entire focus was on girls and, uh, you know, my friends like I was. Yeah, it was just, you know, I'm a, I was a very social animal back then. I'm not so much these days. Mm, got you. So as high school, as you ended high school, what did you think you were doing? 
I mean, going to college I, or towards what? I knew I, I knew I was going to college. I knew I was going to college from the time I was five years old. I mean, I I had incredible parents that were always very supportive. Uh, that always, you know, told me, Mikey, you can be whatever you want to be when you grow up. You know, you're special. And I mm. wish they hadn't told. I wish my mother, in particular, had not told me I was special as often as she had because it put a lot of pressure on me. Yeah. I feel like. Yeah, and I never had a, I never had an effing clue. I didn't have a clue. I, I still don't. I, I mean, I'm, I've gone through life just blind to what the hell I'm doing, and huh. that's, I, I, I consider myself a really intelligent guy, but for an intelligent guy, I sure have fucked up a lot, and I sure don't know what the hell I'm doing a lot of the time. You know, I'm just doing the best I can. Are you a planner? Do you plan things out or are you more? I, I am a terrible planner. Yeah. I hate planning things, especially now. Like, I, I, you know, I don't want to take on that, you know, uh, victim mentality. Let's use that because yeah. sometimes I feel like that's, I do that and I want to stop myself from being that guy. But nowadays, like if I have like just for instance, this podcast, I've known this, we were going to sit down and have this conversation for a week or so. And no one's ever asked me to do a podcast. So I was very honored and very excited to do it, but I've been terrified and so anxious. And, and I had to sit, set like seven reminders on my phone because I was sure I was going to fuck up and like be at the grocery store, full of groceries, look down at my watch and realize that this thing that I had planned on, I blew it, you know, like, and, yeah, and yeah, so, yeah. uh, I don't like plans that give me anxiety. My wife uh -huh. is a meticulous planner. And, uh, if it weren't for her, the wheels would fall off this whole yeah. thing. But, yeah. um, but we also come to blows over it. I'm like, you know, she's planning next year's vacation, you know, right now. And right. I, and I'm like, we don't have the money, <laughs> you know, but yeah. apparently we will by next year because yeah. she's going to plan for it. You know, like I, yeah. I don't plan well at all. I'm very impulsive. I just shoot from the hip, man. So when college was looming, did you know where you're going to college after high school? Yeah. I went directly to Auburn university and flunked out in three terms. And then I went I, back. Okay, so I so what was the plan originally when you went to Auburn? What did you think you were going to major in? And what what did you I, think? Was there any thought as to what the next steps would be originally well, when was, you went to college? The original plan when I went to Auburn. Auburn's a good engineering school. So since I had no idea what I wanted to be, I thought, well, I guess I'll be an engineer. So I was going to be a civil engineer, and I started taking the you know. Uh, freshman, sophomore, prereq classes that are, you know, uh, organic chemistry, advanced yeah. uh, calculus and all this. And and I took some AP classes in high school, mostly, you know, uh, the honors student classes. Um, but I didn't take, for instance, calculus in high school. I, I took the easy way out and took algebra three. And like I got to college and they're giving me this stuff. And first of all, I'm hungover. I'm yeah. having a hard time making it to class because for the first time in my life, I've been tossed into the world free and, and, uh, and I was a total fuck up. And, yeah. and I can remember 
running out of the first day of a chemistry lab uh, that was supposed to last three hours because I was so hungover, I had to vomit. And I did so, you know, outside the building. And I was just too ashamed to even go back. Yeah, I, I think I made four Fs that term. Yeah. But so I, I flunked out real fast and had to like get my shit together. And I did. And I went back and made all A's and B's for the rest of my uh, undergraduate life uh, to pursue that degree. And I got that degree in about six years, you know, and I graduated with like a 2.5 GPA, which isn't stellar. So, so how, how long? And I had to, I had to change majors also. I I think I had to take one or two terms off and then I enrolled at the local community college, which was part of the, you know, get back in our good graces. And I made the Dean's list there. And then I got back in school and I, I, I changed my major to radio, television, film. I was like, because I was starting to figure out if I'm going to do something, I have to actually enjoy it. Like, yeah. and I loved film. And I mean, and I think I was at it, going to school at a great time for the movie industry, the the 90s, early 90s, uh, well, m- m- late 90s, I guess yeah. it was. But, uh, and so I was really all about that. And so I was able to succeed at it because it was something that I was invested in, that I thought critically about as opposed to just, okay, I'm a empty brain, fill me up, you know, with stuff that my brain doesn't care about, you know? I I didn't ask, what did your parents do? Uh, Well, my, my father was a, uh, he was management at the local tire factory and, uh, and, until it closed. Um, and my mother, she, she worked as a secretary, as a real estate agent, little of this, little of that. She always had a job for the most part, uh, and worked very hard at whatever it was she was doing, but she, she didn't have a college education, but she, I mean, I've never seen anybody work a, you know, calculator machine as fast as she can mm-hmm. either. So, yeah. And, and she, she's a saint. And, uh, my dad worked real hard. He, he was gone every morning by 6 a.m. He'd get home about four oh. in the afternoon and, you know, we'd hang out, throw the ball around, uh, watch Jeopardy and eat dinner. And, you know, it was pretty bucolic, to be honest. How did they feel when you flunked out the first time? Were they concerned or uh, were they I, optimistic? I no, they thought I was a piece of shit and told me so. Oh, well, yeah. I yeah. mean, my, I mean, my dad never pulled any punches, especially. Uh, and I was, I was a total fuck up that was letting them down and letting myself down. Um, and, uh, so when I got kicked out, they were, you know, disappointed and, but, you know, they never stopped letting me know that they loved me. They were right, upset right. because they gave a shit. Sure. And so, you know, I told him I was going to fix it and I tried, you know, I, I did my best. Was there any, um, during that time, which obviously seems like a pretty fraught time, uh, was there anything you were doing artistically as either a coping mechanism or as a, or, or just a habit you'd picked up? Did you even just doodle or were you writing poetry? Oh, yeah. I'm like, what was, what was, what was yeah. your artistic through line through all this? <laughs> uh, I did a lot of drawing. Yeah. Um, I did. Like I said, those those line the drawings lines. that I'm referencing yeah. that you yeah. can only see in your imagination, I was doing that just compulsively. I don't know if that was a coping mechanism, but I mean, I'd go over to my buddy's house and and you know he had his own apartment. We'd be sitting there watching shows and stuff and hanging out, and I just 
go through a ream of his paper doing that kind of stuff. But wow. so that wow. it was always just like an instinct. But uh, I wrote a lot of music, really, really terrible three chord music, you know, like, um, but I, I have a pretty good way with words, but I'm a terrible, you know, uh, guitarist and singer and stuff. But I, I, I wrote music. I, I did this and that. I don't know. I, I think I've always like part of, part of the, uh, way I grew up though, I think kind of inhibited my artistic inclinations in a way, because, <laughs> Now that I think about it, I, I got a funny story about high school art class, but um, but my dad's a, a really like old school baby boomer dad. You know, he he came from a his mother graduated, I don't know, uh cum laude or something from Northwestern in chemistry, and his father was oh. a was a surgeon and a general physician and things like that. Yes. So he came from this uh really you do the work kind of uh place and and all this it was almost like the artistic he'd call it like artsy fartsy you know i'm not into all that artsy fartsy and and to this day my dad actually recently complimented me on one of my works He, he does not understand my work he does not particularly like my work my mother um imposes upon him by putting pieces of my work into his house um, but he actually complimented me the other day. And, uh, but like he, we grew up with the, the walls had like, uh, um, signed prints from this artist from Iowa named Maynard Reese. That was my grandmother's friend of ducks. He did like waterfowl. Like he's done, you know, like yeah, yeah. dozens of us stamps. Um, yeah. and, and so that's art to my dad. So any, yeah. like the idea of like, ever doing something like theater or being in band uh, was like dorky to him, you know? Uh, And so I wasn't encouraged necessarily to be particularly artistic. That's not to say that he would have, you know, shunned me. You're not my son, but you know, he just, to him, you do man stuff, you play ball and you, you know, and you cut the grass. I don't know. Uh, was there any rebellion in your work? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so. I think I'm a that's probably like one of the pillars of my yeah. nature is rebellion. It got me in trouble in the army. Uh trouble I always managed to get myself out of. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm I've always been really rebellious. I think I think about the time, you know, I hit puberty is like I my Mother always, she tells my wife to this day how I, I was such a nice boy when I was growing up. I don't know why I make her sound like a um, <laughs> stereotypical Jewish mother. Cause she's not, but, um, uh, she did. She'd tell people that he, he's such a good boy. And all the mothers would say, he's such a good boy that I got puberty and I lost my mind and I haven't found it since. Yeah. Uh, yeah. and, and, and I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I am very rebellious my first painting teacher at the university of oregon was this great painter named ron graff he's a he's an older gentleman and it was the last course he was ever going to teach at the university he was retiring he technically already retired but as to get his full benefits he was doing like this one last class and he was a nut too which i like because i'm a nut 
but he was he was a classic painter he went to yale he learned under the best and uh and he was also a veteran for what it's worth and um he he did it to keep from going to jail it's almost kind of like he joined the army but uh (laughs) but i hated him it's the long like i hated him because he was brutal to me in critiques and i would send him these emails after i'd get home and i'd think about what he said and i'd be so pissed off and i'd send him this email i'd be like you know what? i don't think that was fucking helpful at all you know Jeez. just because i don't make your fucking art huh you know doesn't mean you know maybe it is time for you to fucking retire you know like wow. just like i would lose my shit wow. and, and then the next day I'd, I'd you know i'd i wouldn't have class the next day the next day i'd be like that was really fucking uncalled for you know to myself and I'd send him a follow. I'd be like, listen, man, I, I said some things, you know, and, and so about half he respond. Through, Did he respond to those? Yeah. 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 He, he actually, uh, halfway through the term, he finally got sick of this, you know, fucking revolving door of my hatred followed by my apology. And he, he said, look, I'm not going to give you any more assignments. You paint whatever you want for the rest of the term. And, You'll get a name. I'm sure you'll make some great paintings. And I said, uh, okay. Holy you shit. Know? But I also felt kind of abandoned. <laughs> but yeah, that's what he did. did. Did you feel abandoned? I mean, did he did he not give you any critique or any pointers or anything? He just kind of let you free fall well, and do whatever you wanted? Well, I mean, he did when I, I did have to kind of solicit more in-depth critique like one of our first assignments he gave us was to do like i don't know 20 or 30 very small paintings and i don't do small very good but i was very proud of the 20 or 30 little small paintings that i did and uh you know but he's got to critique a class of 20 so you're talking about 150 paintings maybe right and uh and so you know he didn't stop in the group critique and you know go into depth about any of mine he just kind of moved past it and so i went to him and i and this was the first time he pissed me off i'm like can you tell me what you think about any of these and he said there's no color in them and i was like and i didn't know what he meant and now i know what he meant but i didn't know because i didn't have a any kind of artistic training to understand what he was saying to Uh, me and he was talking about the use of opaque colors versus you know, transparent colors. Uh, and he was an old school oil painter that loves opaque colors to, you know, be the dominant, uh, makeup of his, of his paintings. And that's how he painted. And he, and, and that's kind of what I called him. I was like, look, I know you don't like that. I use acrylic. Like he had a special kit for the whole class and I bought it. Well, the VA bought it. And it, it, uh, it was all these oil paints and I, I painted with oil paints. I've, I've done oil paintings. Um, but I like acrylic because I need it to dry fast because I'm, I'm like, Mm. it's a, it's a, I gotta be in the zone kind of thing. And if I gotta sit there and wait on paint to dry for three days before I can get back to this painting i'm not going to stay connected with it i go and go and go and keep carving it out you know that's kind of how i feel like i'm not so much uh 
building it is like carving it out sometimes. Yeah. And I don't know. They, I So I use a lot of acrylic now. And that's that's been the medium I've been working in most. And uh, there's, you know, some downsides to that. But I, I think I'm getting pretty good at how to make my acrylic as uh, beautiful as possible as far as the final presentation and how it comes across because oil painting is sexy when it's perfectly you know applied onto a canvas and it's got this supple nature to the colors that it that acrylic can sometimes lack but i think that i'm i've developed some techniques to kind of uh make my acrylics not feel plasticky and cheap you know they feel they feel like quality to me at least I would love to see them in person because um, yeah. on Instagram, they really pop and it would be, uh, uh, but you know, you don't get the sense of the texture and the drafts that you, that, that are, that are happening underneath. But um, yeah, I can only imagine when, so staying with Auburn for the time being, you finish Auburn, you get your theater television film degree. Do you, is this when you got the Miramax? Well, no, that, that that didn't happen. Is what happened okay. <laughs> is because gotcha. I, I I thought I was or gonna, the potential. Yeah, I, yeah. Well, I was supposed to go to New York, and every year my film teacher was able to basically appoint one of his students that asked for the privilege to be the Miramax intern in New York. Wow! wow. I went to him, and uh, I actually won him over why I should be the guy with my. Uh, fight club critique that went against his perception of the film and uh that i had called him out in class on and uh so he was like because of that you're my guy and i said great and i was so stoked and uh i was going to move to new york uh for this summer and then he got i don't know the guy that he had done this with in Mir- at miramax in new york uh, they said they pulled the plug on the internship program for the time being. And so at the last minute I had to kind of to graduate it was all I had left was my internship. So I had to uh, just kind of look around town. Hey, I went to the local TV station, uh, got a job with uh, this guy, Bob Cooley, got me on as an intern. He and I are frenemies to this day because of our politics. Um, I don't get to spar with him anymore because I'm, off Facebook, which may be related. I don't know, (laughs) but, um, but yeah. And, and so I did that and that just kind of naturally led into doing advertising sales for a job, but really I sucked at that. I've always sucked at selling and, uh, I made much better living as a bartender, but that didn't really facilitate growing up very well either for me. I needed to, kind of shake loose well yeah and what did that mean i mean when you're working at the tv station did you end that when you got your degree because it was just an internship or did you keep working no no I, I i went to a radio station after that okay so then you went I, to the radio station okay yeah. so what what did you think of your career prospects at that point what, what was your future holding as far as you could tell did you think i thought uh, i i thought i had already fucked it all up really yeah I thought I blew it. 
you know, and uh, twenty four years. But what was it? What 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 did you blow? The engineer. My opportunity or? to no, I didn't want to be an engineer. I'd probably yeah. be a shitty engineer. Right. I know I'd be a shitty engineer. I just by not ever knowing what I wanted to be, I think I missed out on it. Like, oh. like I think I I partied too much. I uh, and I think that like I saw my friends getting into legitimate careers that could you know, sustain them. And I was making $1,500 a month yeah. because I couldn't make enough commission to even make a, you know, a dent over my base salary because I couldn't sell. I, I suck at selling because I'm too honest. I can't sit there and try to build a relationship with somebody and make them trust me. Yeah. And then I don't even believe in my product. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I, I, I just, I was terrible at it. And, but that's, it's like, well, this is the fruit that all that bore you. You've already fucked it up. You know? So if you had gotten the Miramax internship though, you wouldn't have felt that way. Would you have? Probably not. No, okay. I think I'd have been extremely driven and yeah. excited and happy. And I think, yeah, my life might've turned out totally different, but I don't have regrets. I think everything probably has happened to me for some reason. Oh, I think I think that's undoubted. But but um but it's interesting that really it your perception of that time might have hinged on just that event. It's like, oh, I got an internship at a local TV station, so clearly it's all over versus Well, it, they, no, right? the evidence was in my paycheck. I mean okay. <laughs> like okay. in and lack of prospects, really. I mean gotcha. uh my dad tried to help me. Uh he, he was fortunate enough that his father had a friend you know, the old, uh, eternal system of, you know, your buddies, you know, helping give your son a leg up, right. uh, right. you know, that, that yeah. time, time yeah. honored tradition. Uh, well, yeah, he tried and it didn't even work out. And I was just, and that's kind of, uh, when, so that brings me about to when I was 26 and I didn't have shit going on. I didn't have many prospects. And my grandmother, I uh, was very ill. She'd had cancer and then she had a heart attack and she had to literally be brought back to life. And she's, she was the matriarch of our family. And she, her husband died when he was 50. She'd been alone. He died before I was born, but, uh, and she was living alone in Iowa. And I said, I got nothing going on. Let me go up there and take care of grandma. Wow. As she, as she convalesces. And so I went up there and I stayed with my grandmother. Um, and my brother was still living up there. He's my half brother and his father had a farm and he, he lived up there. And, uh, but he was in the air guard and he worked on F-15s and he took me to the hangar with him and, uh, showed me all the birds and, you know, introduced me around and it just hit me like a uh, lightning bolt. I was like, it's not all lost join the fucking military. Like huh. I, you know, I was always very patriotic and, you know, and, and at the time it was like, uh, Fallujah was really not going well. That period gotcha. of Iraq history. Okay. Yeah. And, and I was already like feeling that inclination, but it never like, I don't know what happened. I just had an epiphany that I was about to change my life wow. and, and it was all going to be all right. And I was going to make a difference. My, my kind of fatalistic thinking was, I've been a fuck up and a disappointment right now to this point. I'm 26, 25, 26 years old. I've been a fuck up and a disappointment. I can join the military, go fight with those brave mm -hmm. Americans over there. Worst case scenario is I die a hero. 
<laughs> and, yeah. and that seemed like a fair trade-off to me at the time. And so it, I, I got my shit together. I, I, I got, you know, uh, got it right in my mind and got ready. And that's what I did. How'd your po- folks feel about it? About you joining? My mother was scared, but, uh, they were both very supportive, very proud. Were they proud? Was yeah. it a gear shift? Did you feel like yeah. some, yeah, a little boost? Like, hey, yeah. I am on Absolutely. the right course. Yeah. Absolutely. I was like, this is my last shot, you know, to get it right. And I'm not going to fuck it up. What did you enlist as? Or did uh, you, enlist? you didn't go off, right? No, I didn't. I yeah. did not. Uh, and the and reason was, yeah, why not? Was yeah. because, okay, well, there's a few reasons. Um, I went. In, I was still in Iowa when I went into the recruiter station. First recruiter I went into was the Marines, and they wouldn't take me for a year because I had been uh, prescribed AD, ADD medication mm-hmm. uh, that I had been taking. And uh, they said, you got to get off that shit and come back in a year. And I was like, well, fuck. And so I walked across the hall of the Army and sat down with them. I was like, hey, look, guys, I've been taking this stuff. I'll stop taking it. It's no big deal. Like, what do you, you just... I want to join the military. He said, okay. And they, they had me take the ASVAB and, uh, waited a couple of days, get my results back. And I knocked the ASVAB on his ass. I, to this day, I've yet to meet another veteran with a higher ASVAB GT score than me, which I'm, it's like my stupid bragging rights that I am so proud of. Um, (laughs) what was it? What was your GT score? 139. Yeah, not bad. There, there's not others out there. there yeah, there's yeah. others out there that, have, and I don't know how I did it. I think I, you know, like Will Ferrell. Uh, oh shit, what's that movie? Old school, where he is in debate and just like blanks out and goes crazy. Goes that's kind of that's kind of <laughs> what happened on my ass. Yeah, yeah, but um, and so they were like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And I was like, "I want to be an infantry soldier." And they were like, "No," yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. and I was like, "What do you mean no?" And uh, they're like, "Man, you can have any job." Any, any, any job, please don't pick that job. And so I'm looking at posters on the wall in this recruiting office. I see a helicopter. I was like, can I fly one of those? And he goes, well, you'd have to be an officer or warrant officer. And I was like, no, I don't want to do officer. That'd take too long. You know, like I, I want to do this. And, uh, can I put in, can I do the warrant officer? He said, well, you'd have to put it in packet. It'll take too long. And I said, okay. He said, what you can do is enlist. And then uh, put in a warrant packet after you've been enlisted. Basically, you're working on the same timeline, but you're already in the army. You're already seeing, you know, where the rubber meets the road. And so I said, okay, well, I'll be the guy that works on that. So I was a 15 Romeo, an Apache helicopter maintainer. What was what was basic and AIT like for you? Did you still feel good? Did you feel like you're still on the right path? Um, basic, like for everybody, I think basic, you feel like you've made a terrible life choice for a minute. You know, uh, I remember like the first night of basic, uh, I was running around, they, they had us in these shitty barracks with like freaking pigeons flying around in them. Where was and, it? Where was it? Was in, uh, Fort Jackson, Action okay. Jackson. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, and and um, 
and we were getting smoked every five minutes for whatever, you know, stupid thing somebody did wrong. And so I'm like, guys, if we just stop fucking up, we'll be fine. You know? So I'm like trying to kick everybody's ass. Cause I'm like 27. These dumb 18 year olds right. fucking, you're ruining my shit. I, yeah. you know, uh, and, and I got broke of that pretty quick. You know, I, I did, I think I about beat a kid the second day of basic, like we were sweeping the barracks and he was like, no, I'm tired. I'm laying down. I was in, you know, I was like, you're going to get your ass up or I'm going to beat you to sleep and you won't be able to get out of that fucking bed. And he, he, uh, he swept, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, it was cool. I mean, it was fine. When I got to AIT, you know, we got a lot more Liberty. And so, uh, yeah. which I fucked up multiple times, you got put on red pass and things like that. And, uh, how are you fucking it up? Well, for one thing, I, I was like immediately the, uh, like pretend platoon sergeant of yeah. my AIT class. Yeah. And so I was supposed to be the most responsible because I came in 27 and at E4, you know? Yep. Yep. And so, uh, I had, and I had a bunch of knuckleheads that I was dealing with. Some of them that are still friends of mine to this day. Uh, I can remember being in formation, you know, I'm standing out in front and this, kid matrix standing behind me and that was his real name and uh and he's just giggling like a little kid while the scariest drill sergeant we had is like putting out notes to everybody and he's just giggling i know at any minute that that brown bill is going to flip over to to my formation you know and so i did an about face and just slapped the shit out of this guy <laughs> <laughs> just an about face back around and he was like you know, stifled right up but uh, you know i got in trouble for uh you weren't supposed to take cigarettes to school with you and like i come back from school and then you're supposed to if you're gonna smoke you must have to go up to your room well i was stupid i just went straight to gazebo i got in trouble for that uh i got in trouble for i don't know i don't think i ever got in any real trouble i got in trouble with my drill sergeants a few times but not nothing serious uh gotcha you know, but I, it was just, I think I had the, the wisdom at 27 to be, it's sad that I'm a decade late in being where you need to be mentally to yeah. Yeah. persevere in that environment, but I did pretty good. You know, I think I, I, I uh, did the best I could have done under the circumstances. Were you enjoying it? Did you still feel like it was the right fit and it was the right decision? Yeah, I did. Okay. I really did. And especially, uh, like when we got our orders to our first duty station, I got uh, me and my best friend in the unit um, were they all and and one other guy, the the biggest fuck up in the unit, the guy that I hated the most, who's now the only one that I really keep in contact with. Huh. Um, we all got orders for Germany, and that was like awesome. Like that's where where in Germany? Uh, well, I was at a place called Illesheim. It, okay. I don't I don't think Illisheim's opening or I think they've closed it down, but it was it was like the smallest little place, uh army post in Germany. And um, you know, uh so I was going there with my best friend and we were super excited to conquer Europe and all the yeah. European um you know uh, we we're gonna repopulate Europe. Um, <laughs> and and I but I, I got started a little quickly because I, I met my now wife uh 
I think I met her about a week and a half after getting there. And uh, maybe five months later, we were, I had a baby on the way. Was she German? <laughs> so, Is your wife German? No, no, she was a soldier. Oh, oh gotcha. She was gotcha. in my unit. Gotcha. My unit. Yeah. Wow. So that, that wasn't, uh, you know, um, the way I thought it'd go, but I, I, it's again, one of those things that that's the way it had to go because that's the story. You know, that's, that's, that's freaking what would it, I mean, that's kind of a big moment. What did that mean for you to suddenly shift gears? Like, you know, being a single guy in Germany and being married in Germany to somebody in your unit is a pretty big lifestyle change. Yeah. I mean, did, yeah. did, 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 did that, um, I guess there's no other way to ask this, but did you feel like you were growing up and maturing and going, yep, got some responsibilities, got a marriage, yep, you know, I'm adulting it. right now. That's exactly what I felt like. Like, uh, yeah. I found out that she was pregnant when I was in WLC, if you know what that is, warrior leader course. Sure. And, uh, she had just got, gone home from it. And, uh, I went the, the month after she got up. And so I get to talk on the phone at night and she tells me, you know, over the phone mm. that she's pregnant and wow. she's really upset. And I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. We're going to get married, you know? And we'd been wow. dating like, you know, three months. Wow. I was like, fuck it. I was like, fuck it. We're getting married. And she wasn't convinced at that point that that was the right idea because I had shown her that I am a complete, uh, I, I, some of my behavior would have led her to believe that I'm not quite ready to be a stand-up dad and husband, but uh, eventually I convinced her to take that leap of faith. But, you know, um, I knew I had always known uh, I wanted to be a father. I knew what kind of woman she was. Um, she was the hardest working person in our unit, and mm. she took a great amount of pride in being, you know, there, there can be sexism and with, you know, the, the military where there's just sure. the physical realities of the differences between men and women though are, are real. So she always was like the most driven to the point that it turned a lot of people off. She didn't have a ton of friends. She was like a boss lady that did not yeah. take shit. And, and I admired her for it. I respected her. I wanted to be more like her. And so I, I was like, I got a, I got a woman that I can hook my wagon to that, that I trust. And, uh, with that, you know, to always strive to be the best, she'll make me better. I want to be a father. It's time. Wow. You know, you don't always get to pick the universe tells you, you know? Well, you no, know, it's so true. And that, and I think that really rings home. It's so important to, um, you got to fall into respect. I think with somebody before you fall into love with them. Yeah. For real. Right. I mean, it's it's, easy, last, to do it. it's you know? easy to, you know, uh, there's a line that I heard in a, I think it was from the show Californication or it might be from a book I've read because I've read probably 600 books the past. Well, I've listened to, but uh, it's like, uh, I fall in love with every woman I meet, you know, uh, something to that effect, you know, for the first 15 seconds. And that's one thing, like you can be blown away by so yeah. much beauty, uh, by their, 
this and that, but like, you have to like actually respect somebody. And if I didn't have that respect for my wife with all the things that we've been through, it, I wouldn't be with her now. Yeah. I wouldn't have yeah. my family like I do now. Uh, it's the respect that has always been the thing that's like brought it back together and allowed for forgiveness. And, you know, uh, if you respect somebody, you can always find a way to make it right. You know what I mean? A hundred percent, a hundred percent. Um, yeah, that rings so true. Did you start to feel like your life was now no longer your own? And by that, I mean that your the kind of destiny had taken over and like there was just naturally a natural progression in your life that like the marriage could anchor your future I, steps. Well, yes, to a certain extent, but I, I don't think I was, I think I was very, I, I lacked the introspection that I now have. Uh, mm. Even then, you know, my late twenties, early thirties, I didn't do a lot of self-analysis of my motivations, mm. yeah. you know, my, it was just, you know, uh, get up in the morning, PT, put your boots on, go to work, you know, and and yeah. uh, and so in a way, yes, because like I was, I made sergeant at my two year mark in the in the army, and I was in Iraq at two years. So you know, I I don't I'd only spent nine months maybe at my first duty station mm. before I, I was sent to Iraq and I spent a year there and or 13 months. They, that's right when they stopped doing 15 month tours. Mm. Um, and I had my, my baby girl was born three, three weeks before I, I deployed. So it was like, Oh, cool. You're so cute. Mwah. Bye. Yeah. Right. And, right. and, and I didn't come home until, the very end for R and R. Like I'd been in country twelve months and came home for R and R just to go back and basically help pack up to leave. And wow. uh so I left her at three weeks old, came back and she was one, you know? Yeah. And and then uh but in that time I uh re upped, you know, they had like a a short term reenlistment option that was available to me. They got me like a little bonus money. And I was like, hell yeah, what's another yeah, two yeah, years? Yeah. You know, yeah. I'll take five grand. And so, but I didn't really like think it over that much. It was just like five grand, two years, sure. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, cause I was comfortable with what I was doing. Yeah. And, uh, but then that started to break down more into the process is, you know, I, I think I got more attached to my family, I guess. Um, and that's when I started to, kind of take agency of those things moving forward. It was a real tough decision for me, whether not to get out or do my 20. And, um, but I left for Afghanistan when my son was one, my daughter was three and I came back and they were four and two. Yeah, yeah. And so at that point I realized I was like, you've already in this, not counting field problems and all the time away anyway. Yeah. Just on deployments alone, you've missed half of each yeah. child's life to date. And and you're not doing good um, with it. I can remember my, my son in a green onesie on the hangar floor, one years old, the night I had to get on a bus, go get on a plane to go to Afghanistan. I mean, it broke my heart. 
and uh and and so yeah i i didn't have the introspection until i got to really know my family if you will you know mm-hmm. and that yep. made me that's when i started thinking about what uh direction i wanted my life to go from there what happened to the warrant officer packet did you abandon that uh, early on or no still no well I, I what happened was i got so initially i was so motivated to make rank i thought it was imperative because i was sick of having these 18 year old kids tell me what to do uh, and because and they, it's it's an awkward situation for both of us because right. you know i'm like uh and so I wanted to be a sergeant and, and I wanted to earn the right to kind of put in that warrant packet. Yep. Like I yeah. wanted to do my time. I didn't just want to like paper stamp the fact that I was a, you know, guy that was right. served. So right. I, I wanted to make sergeant and I did that really quickly. Um, and then I got, uh, transferred for Bragg, 82nd Airborne. And, uh, I, I think it was there. Yeah, I got started doing the warrant packet there and I did everything that you need to do. And I got to the eye test. And first I flunked the colorblind test the first time. So I did a retest on that and uh, and I passed the retest. And then they just send you for a vision exam. And the guy says. You can't do it. Your eyes are too bad. And I was like, oh, what the? fuck do you mean i i don't wear glasses i see 2020 he said yeah you do now but in like three years you're going to be really hard your your vision's going to go to hell and i was like i was like i thought he was full of shit he was right um i i have terrible vision that's you know back to my little about visual art for the visually impaired but uh and that's another reason i don't do like really you know intricate i don't know but uh so he was right. Um, and I couldn't do it because my eyes were too bad. And so, you know, I just buckled down on doing what I was doing. Uh, went to Afghanistan, came back, made staff sergeant. And then, uh, you know, life went on. Were you enjoying your job? Were you enjoying your army time? Or was it was it just kind of the thing you have to do? I think I enjoyed every second of my time in Germany. Uh, when I got to Fort Bragg, it was a, uh, it was like being thrown into ice water, you know? Um, I got to what we call a line company, meaning we have our assigned aircraft that we maintain. And, uh, that's what I had done in Germany as well. And I had, I was very green E5 and I get to a unit where there's only one other E5, uh, in that unit. And two E7s that uh, were absentee parents. And the other E5 was kind of an absentee E5, if that's about Like he, uh, when I first got there, he was at some school and he was going through marital problems. And he was talking about, I'm sleeping in my car. Can you take my CQ shift? You know, like, uh, and, and so, and I had this, you know, 20 knuckleheads and all of a sudden I'm the only guy running it. And I felt it was like imposter syndrome, which I deal with yeah. a lot now, uh, combined with just, I don't know enough. I'm not good at this enough yet to, to do my job and feel like I'm doing it well. So I put a lot of stress on myself. I actually like went, got a therapist 
And she wow. really hooked me up. She made me think about things differently, made me realize, you know, the skill set that I had. And then I got some confidence in me. And it was kind of pathetic. One of the things that was kicking my ass at Fort Bragg was the PT. And because uh, I had this drill sergeant that was a, a, a just a brutal PT guy. I mean, he'd take the first time I did PT there, you know, he took us on like an eight mile run. And I, yeah, I'd never ran five miles in Germany, you know, for better gotcha. or worse. Gotcha. I, it wasn't a big focus over there. And, uh, and I was getting my ass kicked and I'd get up in the morning. The traffic was so bad getting into post. Yeah. I'd have to get up at like yeah. 5 a.m. Go get there at 530 and sleep in the parking lot until PT started. Well, where we did PT was right outside the gym. Oh, and yeah. so yeah. what occurred and it was open. And I'm sitting there sleeping in my car. And so what I decided to do was, if I got to get up this early anyway, why don't I take my lazy ass in that gym and get fit so that this stops kicking my ass so that when I go to work, I can kick ass. And I did it. And I got in the best shape of my life. I, I got up to like, at my peak, I was like, you know, six three two fifteen eight percent 8% body fat and could run a 13 minute, two mile, you know, so I got really fit and I got really confident in what I was doing and I got good at it. But I would say that the joy, I don't know if I enjoyed all of it. I, I respected what I did. I was, I was proud of what I did. I had a lot of great friends uh, and people that I respected peers, mentors, and people that looked up to me that I cared about. Uh, but I guess I wouldn't say I enjoy at that point. It started becoming, especially late in my time in Afghanistan, it started to become a weight that I didn't know how long I could carry. You know, had your wife gotten out or had she stayed in? Yeah, she got out after I knocked her up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she got out. Yeah. And and the funny thing is, we went to tell our first sergeant that she was pregnant. And this was such a rock star she was. Granted, she'd been with this unit longer than I had, but uh, we say, first sergeant, we're pregnant, we're having a baby, we're getting married. He goes, okay, you guys know we're going to Iraq, right? <laughs> and 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 we're like, yeah, we know. That's why we're telling. And he goes, okay, so good. We all agree. You're going to have the baby handed off to one of your mothers or something, come back, start being mom and dad, right? No, that's not what we're going to do. For uh, he goes, oh, okay then shrop, you're getting out, right? You're going to take care of the baby, right? You know, we thought that, you know, seeing as I can't breastfeed those <laughs> things, maybe she'd do it. And he's like, if she stays in, she's going to be Sergeant Major, if not Sergeant Major of the Army one day. You, first Sergeant, maybe. And I'm like, thanks, man. Have you seen my GT score, by the way, you asshole? <laughs> But uh, he didn't know me like he knew her. I was new. I was yeah. new to the unit. But uh, yeah. but yeah, he 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 wanted to keep her, and she got out. And the funny thing is, I mean, she was uh, doing phase maintenance, which like complete overhaul of an Apache, pregnant as you know, wow. very pregnant, eight months pregnant, standing up there on the Apache, bossing people around. Uh, she went into labor on a treadmill in the gym. Holy slammed crap. into the front of it when the power went out. 
Holy oh, shit. No, that, those might be two separate incidents now that I'm thinking about. She did go into labor on the treadmill. Another time, I think the power went out and she slammed into it. But yeah, she, I mean, she was a, wow. she was a killer. She was a grinder. Yeah. Let's talk about um, Iraq, the first deployment. Um, how was it for you overall? What was your, what was your main takeaway from the deployment? Um, Iraq was the, I, I probably had the easiest time of things any soldier could hope to have in a war zone in Iraq. Uh, I was very much a fobbit. You know, I never, uh, I didn't do dart missions. I didn't, I, I was in a line company and it was run by two excellent NCOs, uh, Sergeant Montavo, Sergeant Garcia, and they were like mom and dad and they knew it. Like, uh, Sergeant Montavo was this incredibly religious man that used to be a hell raiser, you know, walk around drinking a bottle of 151 and go check on his soldiers, but he'd gotten, you know, he become a very Christian man and we'd have great arguments about uh, ethical concerns <laughs> of our people. But uh, he was he was a real leader and uh, everybody, everybody respected him. And so he groomed great leaders. And I was fortunate enough to learn from those guys. And uh, so it was great. I mean, as far as being deployed is concerned and being without getting to see your family and your newborn daughter is, you know, besides that, it was a, it was a joy. I mean, it really was. Where were you guys? Where were you, where were you? Uh, I was in, uh, uh, Balad. And, mm-hmm. uh, then the second half of the, the, uh, deployment, this was, this is my big gripe is we, we had to move from Balad cause I, I made sergeant, like we were living in shoes, those uh, yeah. container housing units, yeah. and uh, which are very nice. You got air conditioning, you had, you know, AFN, internet. It was, I mean, it was just too good. You know, the food was too good. Yeah. The gym's right there. We had trucks we could drive around the post. The post even had a pool and a movie theater. I mean, it was not, it was like the Disneyland of deployments. What year was um, this? What year was it? Were you there? That was... Uh, 08, 09. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so the war we thought was pretty much winding down. You know, right. it would take another, I don't know, 10 years to actually get us out of there. But um, so that was like my, my first deployment, which I have no complaints. You know, the worst thing that happened to me is that the, uh, I forget what that turret that goes off to shoot down mortars is called. Yeah, I was standing yeah. right next to the C Ram when it went off, and I almost shit my pants. But, uh, <laughs> right, but um, sure. yeah, yeah it, it came back from that, and then had to get ready to uh, go to Fort Bragg. Basically, that became yep. focused because as soon as I got back, of course, I impregnated my wife again. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, and the the dates of when I was supposed to go to my new unit and her having the baby lined up almost exactly, and so. Uh, we had to get like a compassionate release or something to get sent home a couple of weeks early because we oh, got to, to her brand new doctor in North in America, you know, when she's eight and a half months pregnant. Wow. So, so um, the, what were the differences then when you went to Afghanistan um, for you emotionally, obviously now you have two kids, um, but also the nature of the deployment itself. How was that different? Um, 
Yeah, like you said, I had two kids. And I and I had two kids that I cherished. Yeah. Like yeah. it wasn't just the idea of having a kid. It was two kids that I cherished. And uh and it was also I I felt I, I think at that time uh when we deployed to go to Afghanistan, one of the things that had happened in the military is there had been some cutbacks in like personnel levels for my MOS. And so we were a much leaner operation. Uh we didn't have like there was there were too many NCOs in that Iraq, you know, uh-huh. company that I was in. Like it it was too well staffed, I would say, but you know, it, it was also why I didn't mess, yeah. you know, people up. It's not a bad but, problem uh, to have. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good problem, yeah. to, right? Yeah. Um um but it was totally different for that one. I had, I was fortunate that I had two good platoon sergeants that I respect and they're friends of mine, uh, Sergeant Yaw, Sergeant Talamantes. And, um, but first of all, Afghanistan was a different beast where I was in Jalalabad. Like, mm. I don't know how accurate our thermometer was, but it would consistently in the summertime clock out of yeah. like 140. Yeah. And and in Iraq, we had enough personnel. We were taking uh we were working three like eight hour shifts instead of you know pulling 12s and stuff. I was yeah. working 16s in Afghanistan, which for the most part I was behind the wire. So that wasn't a you know I'm not ever gonna bitch about it. You know right but um I halfway through that deployment first or my Platoon sergeant, Sergeant Yowch, gets promoted to first sergeant. And he gets sent to the rear with the gear because we didn't have a first sergeant position. They needed one on, uh, uh, I forget what they call it, the unit left behind. Uh, anyway, rear D. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so it was me and this other E5 were the only candidates to kind of take his place. And this other E5 had hella seniority over me, He'd been in for like 12 years. Um, but he, I was, I was the guy like Sergeant Talamantes came to us. He was like, Hey guys, I need you guys to step up now that he's gone. I need, you know, I'm not going to take days off anymore. Are you willing to make that sacrifice? And he said, no, I said, of course I am. And so like for the last seven months of my deployment, I worked 16 day, 18 hour days without a day off. Um, while also fighting my own internal battle with my first sergeant and command leadership above the company level because they'd fucked me out of getting promoted by canceling my orders to go to ALC before the deployment um, on the basis that we're getting ready to deploy. And I say, well, I'll be done with school by the time we deploy. And they said, yeah, but we're, you know, we're getting ready. So we need you around. And I was pissed off at that because they were nonstop sending the warrant officers off back home to go to flight training, back home to, you know, mm-hmm. go to yeah. IP school. Um, the, you know, officers, that's no problem. But when it comes to us, like the sleep rest rotation, like I, I started turning into this yeah. like barracks lawyer about a lot of things uh, and yeah. for better or worse. It, it was like, I was offended, like, cause I knew what kind of, work I was putting in. I knew what the sacrifices the guys around me were making, you know, and, and I, my first sergeant could be a bully. And, and so he and I butted heads a lot. I remember, uh, 
one of my soldiers froze another guy's hat, right? At a block of ice, you know, yeah. as PC, just to be a dick. And, but it's funny, you know, we're, yeah, going, right. you know, but he can't go to the chow hall if he doesn't have his PC <laughs> unless he wears a helmet, <laughs> you know? And so, uh, but the first surgeon's freaking out, you know, and, you know, I, I, I thought I knew who did it because I heard him talking about it. I wasn't on shift and yeah. I asked around after first, I was like, yep. Do you know who did it? I said, no. He said, well, you better, you better not be lying to me. I was like, I don't know, First Sergeant. And that was true because I hadn't asked the guy to, to his face. Right. So I go ask him. I said, hey, man, you froze that fucking hat? And he said, yeah. And I said, all right, we got to go talk first. You know, because I guess Anderson had been picked on. And uh, and so we went and talked to First Sergeant. And he just sends blow out of the room. It's not about that. You know, that I shouldn't be dropping their names, but. The guy's name, his last name was Blow. But anyway, uh, he sends him out of the room. And it's just me and Sergeant Yowell standing there. And he just starts lambasting me, calling me a liar. And the whole time I've been like petitioning to get sent to yeah. this school at the end of my deployment. I was like, I'll move my R&R to the end of deployment. You guys just send me home a couple weeks early so I can go to school, you know, so I can start school. And uh, I won't even take R&R, which wasn't an option, I guess, according to regulations. But I finally did win that, you know, uh, that fight I had to get out of there a, a couple of weeks early and go to school. But oh um, but at the expense of being bullied the whole deployment kind of by yeah. my first sergeant. And, uh, and be, you know, like somebody calling you a liar. And then the thing that they did that was the most cruel that really kind of broke me up towards the end of it was that um, – you know, I'd been on every single dark mission down to aircraft recovery team mission that we that we ran every outside the wire operation we had every I I I'd spent I went on one where I had my 12 hour shift, not counting handover and everything was at an end when the dark comes down and I go on it and I'm there till that time the next day. And then I'm supposed to be on ship, you know, yeah. that type of stuff. And uh I knew what I was putting into it and they kept telling me, okay, Hey, we got you a flight out of here. You're going home to see your kids and you're going to school. And, uh, I'd call my family, you know, stupidly be like, uh, guess what? Daddy's coming home. Well, yeah, I did that once. And then I thought, okay, I, I learned my lesson because there'll always be a reason we can't let you go yet. Sure. We can't let you go yet. Sure. And then I was like losing my shit over it. Um, because you know, they, it's that carrot and then they just take the stick and whack you with it. Yeah. And, uh, and so, and working those kind of hours and those in that environment and with the stress level of constantly making mission, um, you know, it, I, I was putting a tremendous amount of stress on myself and, and I wanted to, get home for my daughter's fourth birthday. Yeah. And I was, that's what I hoped more than anything is I'd be there for her fourth birthday. And, uh, I, my first Sergeant tells Sergeant Telemontis, you can tell Shrop he's leaving on his flight next week for sure. So he can stop losing his shirt. And I was like, he comes, tells me that. And I'm like, Oh, thank God. And so I, called my family and stupidly I told them 
I told my four or soon to be four year old daughter, Daddy's gonna be home for your fourth birthday, baby. How's that sound? And she was so excited. And uh I was lying to her. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a lie. They made a liar out of me, and it was the first time I ever lied to my daughter, you know, and it broke my heart. Uh yeah. And and but I did it myself. I shouldn't have told her that. I should have known better. I should have been wiser even then, but I wasn't, you know. You know, for those that, that aren't already aware, um, can you talk about your DART missions? Uh, not to totally shift gears, because uh, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm diminishing the importance of that. That's um, That cuts close to home, and I, I there's no two ways about it. That's I think you you articulated something that I think a lot of people can relate to, which is that bureaucratic coldness that can really fuck up your headspace especially overseas when you're in a high stress environment and you're and then when you have kids um and uh, yeah that's so not to diminish any of that but also before i forget walk us through the dart missions uh what were they like was that was that always a highlight for you to do those or were they uh asshole puckering or were would you rather have just given them up but you were trying to lead from the front like what were they like for you I think it was all those things. Uh, uh, not so much asshole puckering, except for the first one that I went on, which I'm not even sure like how much I should say about it. Like, cause we were in a kind of sketchy area in Afghanistan, right on the border of Pakistan. Yep. There were some incidents. Uh, I know, I know there's some th- stuff I shouldn't talk about too much, but, uh, the first one I went on wasn't even for our unit. It, the one in, first one in Afghanistan wasn't even for, well, I guess that is the first one, but wasn't even for our unit. And it seemed sketchy. Even when we were getting the information, we were going to save somebody else's ass. They got stuck out in the middle of nowhere. And what they had done is rolled the arch, which means they decoupled the mechanical flight controls, which is a really finicky uh, thing to fix. It, it takes finesse, a little bit of luck, you know, and, and just knowing what you're doing. And so I was like, I got this. I know how to, I know how to fix that. And so I get loaded up with some guys on a Chinook and, uh, we, we have our, you know, computers to do the maintenance on and all our toolboxes and all that stuff. And we're flying out in a Chinook in the middle of the night. And as we're getting, close to the target area uh all of a sudden the chinook just starts taking these crazy uh some really evasive maneuvers um, okay blowing chaff you know uh things like that uh which is designed to uh disguise it from any you know missiles and things like that um but you know I assume we were under some kind of fire and then we get on the ground and the, the, the Chinook crew chiefs are like, get the fuck out. And they're throwing our toolboxes out and all but kicking us out of the door. And we are getting shot at. And, uh, you know, we suppressed it pretty quickly and didn't know, I didn't know where we were. I was with like three other guys and there's two pilots with this helicopter. And, uh, and once we more or less determined that we were no longer uh, in danger of getting shot, 
we get to work on this helicopter and I've never done that maintenance task as effectively, efficiently and quickly as, yeah. as I did yeah. that day. And, and we got their aircraft fixed. They flew out of there and then we're just sitting in the middle of the desert waiting on a imaginary, you know, uh, helicopter come. And fortunately it did. Um, so that was my first one ever. Um, and that was, the, was that the first time you'd been in contact? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd been mortared and rocketed, right? right like right. you know, I mean, that's just like going to school. You're but, right, uh, right. But it, yeah, that's the first time anybody was aiming guns at me. Yeah. And how'd you feel in the wake of it? Uh confused a little bit because, like, I'm surprised there wasn't more of a conversation about, hey, you guys were getting shot at. Uh. You know, um, and you had to yeah. defend yourselves. Um, I was like, okay, okay, where were we? Like, <laughs> was I in Pakistan? Um, and I might have been. I don't know. I really don't know. And yeah, sure. um, but you know, I, I went on to others after that, and there was for the most part less drama on them. The one that really sticks out in my mind, uh, I was just basically going from Jalalabad to this um uh, FARP, which Ford, uh, I don't know, advanced refueling point, you know, it's, it's just like a little outpost where they got a fuel truck and enough grunts to pump the gas. And, uh, somebody had a mechanical problem and this was one of the, that's the one I was referring to. I was at the end of my shift and probably 1 PM in the afternoon. I say I'm going and uh Yalch was still there then uh he was our platoon sergeant and he he says well fuck it i'm gonna go with you then and so it's he and i are the 15 romeos headed out to fix this thing we take some armament guys fly out there and and what sticks out to me this whole day is like etched over the you know mountains of afghanistan and the valleys of afghanistan yeah, yeah. and midday before and i i wrote a poem about it uh actually that i thought was pretty good but it was like when i was flying out there i'm looking out of the helicopter and down at this river that's just snaking across you know this arid landscape and i'm like yeah. how does that thing keep going you know like uh, it's so hot like how yeah. it makes it I remember in the poem I wrote, it, I was like this river because it looked red from the sky too. Maybe it was the reflection mm-hmm. of the, how the, you know, the sand and the mountains around it reflected their color off of the surface of that river. Now in the poem, I wrote something effective. It looked like God reached down with his craggy nails and just like drew blood from the surface oh, of the earth. Man. Yeah. You know? And that's how it felt to me. And, uh, and anyway, we get to this fob or FARP, as it were, and uh Ford ammo and refueling point. That's what it is. Um, and and the aircraft's there. I I think it was like some kind of uh, generator or something was bad. And uh I'm looking as you know, afternoon is turning to du- dusk and the way the light was coming through this valley of it was very cavernous where we were. We we're like mm-hmm. at the foot of this little hill with mountains just rising straight up yeah. on each side. And the sun was setting in such a way that it just threw half of each mountain into shadow and the other one in golden yeah. light with like 
I, I've made paintings about it, you know, I've written poetry about it. And it was just like, I had never thought of Afghanistan's beauty before. And I saw it in such an impactful way that day. And then a thunderstorm of all things rolls in and we're out there and rain that is pleasantly, you know, cooling us off, but then it turns to hail and, and we have to crawl up under the helicopter and wait out, wait out the hail to go back to fixing it. And uh, you can hear me, right? Uh, yeah. 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 You're back. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. No worries. I lost it for a couple of uh, seconds. Okay. okay. Well, I'm just saying like we were getting rained on like hell and laughing through the rain, working on this helicopter. Yeah. And uh, then it turns to hail and we have to get up underneath and like in the post deployment, you know, uh, uh, slideshow pictures, you know, there's pictures yeah, of me. Yeah. Sitting right up under the fuel cell of an age 47 Delta with a cigarette and a headlamp on my bald head, you know, like, it, uh, which is not, you know, where you typically want to be smoking your <laughs> cigarettes, but, but, uh, like it was like this great adventure almost in that, that particular one until the rain stopped. It turns to night. It starts getting really cold. We're soaking wet. We don't have changes of clothes. Um, and so I think I'm, oh, I'm wet and cold. And we're just sitting up by this radio that is only coming through broken, un, unreadable, wondering if anybody remembers they need to come pick us up, you know? Um, and, and so we're paying close attention because if a aircraft comes in that needs to refuel, any one of them might be ours. We hear Blackhawks coming in and I think, oh shit, this is my ride at home. And so I'm so ready to get back and get, you know, in my bunk that I just, I'm like, I'm confident. I feel good. I put on all my battle rattle and start jogging down to the aircraft and I step on board and I look down and there's this guy there with his head missing more or less. And, and the crew chief, he's like, Hey, you gotta, you gotta get off boss. This sorry, sergeant that, you know, we got a hero on board and I didn't know at the time, yeah. but I knew the guy he worked, he was, he worked in the office adjacent to ours. Uh, I won't say his name. He was a he was a flight medic, and uh, he he was killed when uh, going to retrieve some wounded guys. And uh, they had they had landed on a on an incline, and so he didn't duck far enough when he got out of the helicopter. Oh shit! He was in such a hurry to go get to the wounded that oh, he fuck. forgot that one basic step and it cost him his life and uh i wrote a, i wrote a poem dedicated to that guy but uh yeah he his his son at the time was in basic training to become a flight medic just like his father and so that's that that was that day tied up in a knot for me it was yeah. kind of like this this beautiful tragedy wow you know uh so that was you know that's about all I got to say about dark missions. No, listen, I mean, that's, that's plenty. That's, um, it's so fun. You know, while you were talking about that, I was thinking there's, there is something I feel like that so many folks have where there's that one day <laughs> there's, it's almost always one day, it, it, not always, I should know I said, but, yeah. but uh, there's so many stories of her where it's like, there was that one day and then so much happened that not even that so much happened, but that so much made an impact on the individual that day. 
Like there's so many memories, so much sensory information that got ingested in that day. And it's almost like, oh, that's all the, that's a bulk of the takeaways of what I'm taking home with me um, to unpack, to in some cases inspire, and in some cases um, sort through. And uh, that's, I'm, I'm intrigued by a couple of things because I, I do want to ask about the poetry. Um, did you write the poetry soon after or no, was it I, years I, later? Yeah, it was, it was a few years later, uh, probably in 2015. I, I, cause when I first started uh, going to school, I didn't understand what classes I was allowed to take under this program. And I, I, wanted to understand, but the counselor that they gave me that was facilitating my return to college was uh, out sick. Uh, and so yeah. I just, I was like, I got to enlist, or uh, not enlist, I got to enroll in something. And uh, so I took creative writing, creative writing poetry, and like an art history class. and uh, and. I I've always really loved writing, storytelling, and things like that. I told you I did, you know, I wrote yeah. songs. I yeah, but I I think it was more about the poetry of the songs than my ability to perform them. Uh, so I don't know. I I use that as an outlet to kind of work through those things, I guess you know. And it yeah. was pretty pretty uh, healthy. And I I think that I know that I had it a lot better than so many people. And I'm so much more fortunate to still be whole and, uh, well, close to it at least. And, uh, you know, my, my kids still have a dad, Yeah, you know? So I just, I, I always think about that, you know, it, it wasn't the only guy that, you know, I knew that I lost, you know, uh, from just service related death, you know, is what yeah. I'd call it, you know? Um, and, but I, I feel like they should matter, you know, like if anybody, cause when the, you know, Americans, the non-military Americans are civilians, when they think about, uh, you know, losses, they think about, you know, like quantitative numbers and yep. stuff, but yep. each, each guy, if you're the guy that knew the guy, yeah, you honored them by showing that they matter, you know. So that's why I wrote about it. Yeah. Had you been doing anything artistic during your time in the army, or did you really shift gears and you were just all about the military? Interestingly, and I don't know how it came to be, I can't recall, but like they my military, even my leadership recognized that I had some artistic talent. I don't know if it I, I can't even tell you what it was that made them think this, but like they'd come to me and be like, Hey, can you design your, our unit patch? You know, really well, stuff like that. Yeah. And just little things like that. And, uh, and, but that's about it. You know, like I wasn't, I didn't have time. I didn't, yeah. I didn't yep. stop and do that stuff. Mm-hmm. I couldn't have, I couldn't have been who I had to be then. Yep. You know? Yep. I totally get that. I had obligations. When you made the decision to get out, 
Um, how confident were you in the decision? I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. Um, if I hadn't been broken a bit, I probably wouldn't have got out. How did you and get broken? I did it myself. I, I came home from Afghanistan and I had some problems uh, reacclimating to being home. Me and my wife were going through some hard times. Like, uh, I didn't understand why she was acting the way she was towards me. And I'd get mad. And like, what happened? The way I hurt myself is I punched my car <laughs> and uh, it sh I shattered my wrist and it was never the same again. Wow. I had, I had a 11 Bravo do the surgery. That's that ought to tell you. Well, I didn't know that till after the surgery, like they should put that on a disclaimer, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. yeah, like I, uh, we went to a comedy club in Raleigh, had a great time, saw a comic and there was this guy that was like there alone which I'll tell you something They kind of like attached himself to us. And I'm trying to have a date night with my wife. And I'd been, we've been talking to this dude, being friendly, being pleasant, having a few drinks after the show. And, but I'm just trying to like, you know, I'm trying to sweet talk my wife and stuff. And he's yeah. just like, Hey guys, you know, and I was just like, Hey man, we fuck off. And my wife got really mad at me because I'm an asshole, you know? And uh, yeah. like, you know, this guy got, his feelings hurt and I run him, ran him off. And she's like, God, you're such a fucking asshole. And we got a big fight and, you know, uh, we're in the parking lot, you know, having this big argument and I lost my shit and I punched my car and it broke my wrist. Um, and I'd like to say that was the last time it ever happened. And it's not, um, it now I I'm, 95% sure I'm done with that for the rest of my life. Hitting an objects is out for me, but, uh, it's a tough yeah. one to win. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah you know, it was yeah. just something stupid like that. Yeah. And, and I broke my wrist and I, I like, I couldn't do push-ups. like yeah. I, and so I didn't want to be the broke NCO. Yeah. Uh, don't, you know, don't do what I do, do what I say. I was always lead by example, you know, and when I started to, like, I was, went from being in like peak physical condition, going to the gym every day, doing PT on top of that every day to like, just feeling like a slug that was decomposing, yeah. you know? And, yeah. uh, and I was like, that's not the type of lead. I, I got another 12 years if I stay in and I, I won't with this kind of energy, I, I won't be the guy I want to be doing that. And it wouldn't be fair to the military wouldn't be fair to the guys that I yeah. feel it's my responsibility to serve, you know, what, and it was what, terrifying though. I mean, yeah, I, I didn't I, I know how to it. provide for my family. I'd never provided yeah. for myself before the military. Yeah. Uh, like I was, I was not real confident, uh, but I got an opportunity. If you want to call it that, or a, you know, it was one of those, like, it seems too good to be true. Uh, to, to the, I started getting recruited by an insurance company that was going to let me open my own insurance company branch, uh, basically anywhere in America, if I, you know, passed the test and all that I did, but, and my wife being from Oregon, she, she's adopted and, uh, she has a biological sister who's disabled 
and a adopted brother who's disabled. And she, it was very important for her to be close to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I moved to Oregon. That's where she's from gotcha. and uh, moved away from, you know, anybody and anything I ever knew. And that's a terrible way to start an insurance business. That's a, <laughs> that's a relationship business. Yeah. First of all, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and it was the, the way this company, I'll just say state farm was doing it. Uh, at that time they were offering things called new market contract, which inherit a book from some guy that's retiring. You start from scratch oh. and they have incentive bonuses to, that are supposed to facilitate you being able to build that something sustainable. Wow. And, and they stopped doing it because it it was, it was setting people up to fail. Um, I didn't fail. I, they, they put you on basically your first year, you're on probation more or less. If you do not succeed in the eyes of your superior, they won't extend you a permanent contract and everything you've invested is out the window. All that debt you took on is yours oh, for life. Primary. Wow. And 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 they quarterly beat you over the head to tell you what a piece of shit you are. And I didn't think that was working out very well for me. I went from weighing like 200 pounds to like 165. I it was killing me. I got my permanent contract by the skin of my teeth, I imagine. Um and then I quit the next month. Because with your permanent contract comes a $12,000 bonus check. <laughs> so you gamed him. Completely honest. I think that, that they should not have put me in that position in the first place. But it is what it is. And uh, so I was kind of left untethered at that point. And this, I saw this vocational rehab uh, school opportunity because they pay you to go to school as an opportunity to get my life right and figure out my bearings, you know, and I just ended up seeing it through because I became so passionate about my art, you know. Now you said you got a poetry scholarship. Well, yeah, when did I got that offered happen? a third term at the University of Oregon. I had taken okay a couple of poetry, a couple of creative writing classes, and then I uh, submitted. They have I forget the name of the scholarship, but they have a in university, in the uh, writing department, a uh, scholarship fund that somebody set up a long time ago that you take a little bit more advanced classes, get more one-on-one time with the, uh, you know, poetry teachers and whatnot. And and I, I got the scholarship and it was invited into the program. I just couldn't pursue it. And so. But I, I mean, what a promising lead though. I mean, that's. Damn near well, yeah, those, but I mean, how know? promising a lead? It will. I could say the thing, same thing for what I do now as a painter. But I mean, how promising huh. is is poetry in the long run? Like, oh, no, I, totally. it's beautiful. You don't do it because it's it it's financially viable. You do it because, <laughs> right. like, I do what I do because at this point I couldn't do anything else. You know. And there's a lot in that. Let's talk about the art. So, at this point. At the University of Oregon, was this the most seriously you'd studied art? Oh, absolutely. Answer. What were you learning that you didn't, or first off, what was it like coming back to art? What did that Uh, mean for you? Was it, was it 
like riding a bike or was it a whole new language that you have to relearn? What was going on for you? Well, the, the language part of it, all that, you know, if you, I'm a pretty good communicator and I'm good at like, you know, cooperative communication where you understand what people are saying and how to talk like them and things like that so that, you know, you can get along. But, uh, I, I, I was like Rodney Dangerfield and back to school. I was having the time of my life. <laughs> I'd, I'd still be at the U of O if, if they didn't make me graduate, if the VA refused to keep paying for it. But uh, just because it was such an environment to be in where like you're getting critiques. Like I love doing critiques with my fellow students, even though, you know, and I'm like this old weird guy, scary dude that walks around with a knife on his hip you know, like I'm, I am definitely the oddball, but at the University of Oregon in the art program, you got to go <laughs> a pretty long way to be the weirdest guy they've seen. So, uh, I had a fun time, man. I really enjoyed school. I, I had some great teachers, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm still bitter at all of them because none of them, like the, the, I asked, uh, my, my mentor, it was a professor there. You know, what do I got to do? I'm I'm here in Eugene, Oregon. I'm I got started this late. I can't just move around. You know, I was. Yeah. What What does a guy like me do to get into galleries to get some traction? And he says, move to New York or L.A. and make friends with artists. Oh my lord! And he's like, I don't know how to do it any other way. Like he's from Brooklyn. He he hated the circumstances led him to have to take this job schmucking out here in yeah you know, the Northwest Woods and like. Those aren't options to me, so oh, I got to do what I yeah, do. That's yeah, why yeah. I, you know I do yeah. the Instagram thing. Well, and and I think that's a really dated way of looking at it. Um, man, I'd like I, to think it is. Yeah, it is. I, I don't think that needs to be anymore. Um, yeah, I mean we've we've done a bunch of stuff with Principal Gallery in Alexandria and uh, outside, of, you know, in DC, and uh, and they've been around forever and work with a lot of really well known artists and all that. But the artists are fucking everywhere. And they don't have the artists don't have to be there. Um, yeah, that's that seems that seems outdated. But yeah, for and, you, and he'd probably tell you the same thing. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, for but you, he just doesn't know. Nobody knows the answer. You know, it, it is definitely a changing landscape. So, yeah, I get that there's flux and people might not have dev out that all out. What was it like? Um, I mean, I'm impressed that you were having fun because I could see a lot of different ways that emotionally you might feel going back into that environment. Um, culturally, did you feel like you were fitting in? Did you feel like, Hey, I've seen so much more. And now I'm like with generations behind me. And, you know, I, did, did, did you feel to use like a very Oprah word? Did you feel seen? Did you feel heard? Yeah, I definitely did. I, I, it, it was surprisingly comfortable oh. like i am terrified like i don't know when the transition happened where i i've become almost like a hermit um because i'm out here this isn't where i'm from these aren't my yeah. people out here yeah. and and a lot of these people around here aren't my people uh and so it's hard to have like grown-up relationships i guess you know i my the people i talk to the most are probably in alabama you know yeah outside yeah. of my immediate family and uh and so I was pleasantly surprised by how 
well I was able to get along with, you know, there was, I'm not gonna lie. There were incidences where I showed my, you know, like a uh, kind of lack of sophistication. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Just based on, you know, the art people made or the poetry they wrote. I got so sick of hearing just like at the time Trump was in office, you know, and every college kid was, you know, programmed that they have to hate that. And, and so when it came to people making art and poetry that was super political or, uh, something like that, like I, I'd give my critique. I'd be like, yeah, I'm kind of bored with it. You know, I yeah. hear it yeah. every time, yeah. you know, somebody's got some kind of negative societal fucking message to their art. I'm here to make art, not to fucking, you know, I'm not trying to, if I, if I wanted to do that, I'd blog about politics you know i I do something else i'm an artist yeah i think you should make art i think you should write poetry and it ain't that's not what those vehicles are best suited for i'm not saying there's not a time for like art to be a political political thing thing, but it just got so tiresome you know overwrought bullshit and and so i'd show my colors a little bit in those situations and Whoop. and I'd get and I'd get slapped on the wrist for being a cis uh, male, you know, white guy that has it these get it. And yeah. and I'm like, yeah. yeah, well, I guess so. Yeah, 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 right. What were you learning? What was what was eye opening to you artistically? You know, the thing is, I don't know. I learned, you know, I learned art history was very helpful because mm. I think to know. To, you, it's important to be able to frame what you're doing and know whether or not you're being like, are, am I influenced by this uh, or whatever? Yeah. And one of the things I really, truly like about my art, even though I'll freely admit I'm, you know, in many ways could be considered bad artist, is that I don't really feel like I'm derivative of any of that. No. But I had to know that, to know that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Know? And, uh, and, but I, it gave me respect for art. It gave me a respect for the people that were the uh, game changers that that moved the needle and made art change it from something stuffy to something cool. I learned those things. That's like the things that you learn that are like nuggets of information that go in the information nugget box. As far as like technical skills, I didn't learn a fucking thing. You know, really. Like, yeah. yeah, they didn't teach you any technical skills. They would tell you to do something, you do it, you critique it, and that was great. I love getting to discuss my art or someone else's art in that you know kind of collective environment. Yeah. Um I I got to learn how to I did get to technique. Okay, I take that back. From like a sculpture perspective, I got to learn how to weld and do all this cool okay. shit in the machine sure. shop. And I went banana sandwich in there, man. If I had the facilities at home, I'd probably be doing a lot more sculptural work than uh, I'm able to do now. But uh, you know, one day when I grow up, um, <laughs> I'll have I'll have all those things in my forever home, um, like a real studio instead of a kitchen or a dining room. <laughs> right. Yeah. What kind of art did you find yourself making? Was this your dark period when you were really kind of exhuming yeah. corpses? from your mind yeah and, and i will say that like my first 
I don't know, a few terms at, at school, I, I kind of cringe at how I was kind of an open wound too focused on the yeah. past. Yeah. And, and I, I, and I think I probably felt sorry for myself maybe a little bit, uh, but I, and I was expressing that through my artistic outlets and that was healthy yeah. to get off my chest. You gotta do. Right? I just don't yeah. want to go yeah. back and share that shit with anybody. Yeah. Now I've moved gotcha. on, you know, gotcha. like, yeah. Yeah. And so when, I'm not real proud of that stuff, but sure. it, it was necessary and I did that. You got to move through that. Absolutely. Yeah. When did you what was your the first piece you sold? Actually, the first piece I ever sold was to a soldier of mine that hated my guts when he was under me. Uh but we're now friends. I've had him to two Thanksgivings. Jeez. Uh yeah. yeah, he he uh saw I was putting out some of my early work on the internet and he wrote me and told me because we had had this argument in the, in the army one day, he was, he was just about in tears about the plight of the black rhino, which I, you know, I empathize. I think that the poaching and just, you know, extinction of the black, black rhinoceros is a real fucking problem, but we were trying to get a, you know, uh, PMS done so that we could make mission. And I'm like, can you fuck the black rhino? I would put a bullet behind the last black rhino's ear right now. Just get you <laughs> shut your fucking mouth and go to work. And, and we had this big argument about it. And so he, he hits me up and he's like, I want you to paint me a black rhinoceros. And I did, you know, it was the first painting I ever sold. Holy and, shit. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, I think since then he had, uh, he did have an emotional breakdown one day and he chopped it up with his katana sword amongst other things in his house, which wow. he was ashamed to tell me about. And it kind of broke my heart, but uh, yeah, he had a breakdown for some reason, but um, and, but this yeah. is the painting on you. It's on your Instagram, right? Is it? I don't know. I think I it is. Know. I'm seeing one of a, of a rhino. That's yeah. Well, that'd be, very it. Dark. I didn't do, I didn't do two black rhinos. Yeah. Think, that's so. it. Wow. Um, how what was it like for you just business wise just getting launched and i know you've been very you know i know you're like yeah i'm, I'm nobody i'm not doing anything it, it seems surprising to me because i think your work is quite frankly phenomenal i don't know anybody else that's doing this kind of work and the variety and not just the variety but the distinctiveness there's nothing you've done to your point about derivativeness yeah. There's nothing you've done that I've ever gone, oh, I see. You're going through a phase where you're mimicking so-and-so. It yeah. is clearly birthed out of pure individuality. And I I'm I mean, I know you said you suck as a salesman, and I'll take you for you at your word for that. <laughs> but I'm like, I don't think it takes much talent to move your work because I think there would be a market for so much of the stuff you do. I mean, I could see prints happening from so many of your abstracts. I just think there's there's so much stuff that could happen with that. What's that journey been like for you, though? Uh, the journey has been mainly, uh, you know, I've sold most of the work I've sold is just to people that I've known. Um, well, <laughs> nearly all of it, uh, is to people that know me. And maybe that's part of the reason I don't have as much confidence as maybe I should carry around. Uh, but I, I, uh, there's no process. It's, I, I just make art, 
And then if somebody comes along and wants to buy something, that's my favorite thing. I hate it when people ask me to make things for them because yep. then I'm trying to meet somebody else's expectations. Yep. I like it when they just want what they saw that I made. And, huh. uh, but yeah. I, I have a tremendous fear of rejection. I'm still really like, I'm. it's my baby and I'm scared somebody's going to tell me my baby's ugly and that it's no good. And so maybe I don't put myself out there enough. Um, maybe I deal with a little bit of imposter syndrome, like, because who do I think I am that I can just at 41 or 40 years old, I don't know, I was probably 38, 38 years old, just reinvent myself as this new person and expect that to resonate with anybody. I don't know. I There is no process. I, I Like I said, yeah, shitty salesman. I suck at it. And more or less, you know, I know Van Gogh sold one painting in his life to his brother. Right, right. You know, and I've already got him beat by a long shot. And, <laughs> and so right. that's that's what I chew on for sustenance. <laughs> well, and I'll, I'll say this because um, I'm glad you brought up the imposter syndrome because I think that's really important. I, because I think you're not, not only not alone with that, I think you're in an overpopulated space with people, especially veterans that feel uh, the imposter syndrome for multiple reasons and in multiple different ways. But I think especially when it comes to the arts, I think and this is one of the things that I've kind of maybe not articulated well in the past on this show that I think the veteran experience is time spent in the arts because I think it is such a genesis of so much of what's to come. And it's so not, it's not that you're coming to the arts late. It's that your process has by necessity had to take you through that path. And that path is a long, in that case, eight year path. So, yeah, you know, I so I be and I say that also because I mean, dude, just empirically, as an impartial observer, I mean, your work's fucking good. I mean, are and I, I don't even want to get into price points and all that, but if you're not selling your work for a lot of money, um, you What's should. What's a lot of money? I mean, oh, I, I think, I mean, listen, I mean, so much of art is subjective and name and name recognition and all that. I think if if you were to tell somebody that you were somebody else, somebody yeah. in the art world that had a name, I think you could easily sell stuff for six figures. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, that's kind of the that I hate that about the art game too, though. Is that like, who are you? You know, it, it's yeah. Oh, I, totally. Yeah. I I I am starting to get the confidence to believe that when if somebody looks at one of my paintings in person, they're gonna they're gonna know it's cool. Whether yeah. or not they want to hang it on their wall now, that's another thing. Because my art. For a lot of people, isn't what you want to go in your, you know, uh, in some cases, home, home decor. In some yeah. cases, you know, yeah. it it could be a little edgier. Maybe you know, people like ducks. You know? <laughs> I don't know, but, but some people. But yeah, there's no, there's a lot, and your abstract work is fucking phenomenal. I, I it really, really is. That. No, and it really is. And and I mean, and as you said, I mean, you bring an abstract quality to a lot of the work you do. I mean, there's nothing you do that's naturalistic. But um, no, I, I think there's there's a really bright future for your work. I'm excited to see what happens with it. Um, listen, dude, first off, thank you for wasting a Saturday or a large chunk of it with me um, because this has been, I, I, I literally had no idea when I started following you how many niches you were going to fit into 
and how many things you've confirmed in my mind and that uh and how many things track with the work that i've seen you produce um it's been a fucking pleasure to hear the backstory behind it no it really has been and then tell everybody where they how they need to follow you first off uh at shrap the artist on instagram and if you ever see you know a piece of my artwork that you're interested in uh, obtaining i i try to make it as easy as possible because uh if nobody if nobody buys it i'm gonna keep doing it even if i never sell another painting but i'm gonna be buried alive in my own inventory so you guys help me out yeah i'd love it. <laughs> yeah shrop, and at, at shrop the artist on instagram that's s-c-h-r-o-p-p perfect and and thank you very much man uh this is the first bit of positive validation i've really gotten a long time you reaching out to me and offering to have me on and uh it's it's really uh been great so well it's I'd an love easy to do it again and you know oh, for sure see where we're at oh I, I would i would love to i would love to because um a lot more to come and uh like seriously to everyone out there check out mike's work and honestly if you really want to steal fucking buy his shit now because yeah. I, I really think when you, you start to when you start to get bigger and bigger and better and better known, these pieces are going to go for a lot. I, I really do think. I think there's some phenomenal, phenomenal pieces here. Um, Mike, it's a pleasure. Please, let's do this again. All right. Thank you, Chris. I'm humble. Thank you very much. Have a good one. That was Mike Schropp's profile in Havoc. Um, we had a lot of technical stuff with this. Mike's camera didn't work, so it was essentially a phone interview. And uh, we had a bunch of connection stuff that happened. And none of that really dulled my enthusiasm for what Mike was talking about. Um, just so many great stories and great illustrations um, of uh, how really to make sense, <laughs> to coin a phrase, how to make order out of chaos. No, I mean, but how to, how to make sense of um, a life that, that was fragmented in so many ways. And yet had, uh, and yet has culminated into something truly magnificent. Um, and I can't. I, I'm, I'm dead serious. Like, if you don't know Mike's work, first go check it out, and then legitimately like get it now. Like, if you like some of the pieces, surprise your loved one, get it now. It's it's going to be out of your price range soon. I, I really think. I think Mike's work is phenomenal. Um. But what a blast talking to him. Um, yeah. Really, really optimistic about what the future holds for him. Uh, literally, we just ended the interview. So, sorry, I'm still kind of, um, you know, sussing out my thoughts. Uh, and, and what a great time talking. Uh, you know, anytime we, you know, can get that much time from somebody, we're very grateful for it. Because uh, that's a, uh, we burned a couple of hours on a Saturday getting through that and uh really fun conversation okay um i started off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor second mission foundation now i'd like to take a second and thank this episode's other sponsor veterans repertory theater for those of you that don't know veterans repertory theater is a 501c nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a platform for military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employees and contractors, and their immediate family members a platform 
to do world-class live theater and events. If that all sounds like a lot, you're not still totally sure what it is. It's theater. It's live performance. Um, I could say more about it, but I'm not going to. I'm going to instead send you over to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. While you're there, you will see everything you could possibly want to see about all of our lines of efforts, the podcast, the literary blog, the live shows, our parlor performances, resident artist programs, our playwriting competition, um, the, some of the plays that we have in development. Uh, you'll just see a whole ton of stuff. Um, but while you're there, what I will draw your attention to, if you're getting information overload, is just go to scroll partway down our homepage. You'll see the option to subscribe for free to our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. And when you subscribe, you will get in your email inbox every single day a little piece of veteran writing, usually poetry, fiction, or creative nonfiction, or sometimes a picture of veteran art, depending on who our podcast guest is usually that week, um, followed by a bunch of shameless plugs with whatever we have going on and links and all the rest of that. You'll get that every day. So it's the best way to know what we have going on, what is available to you, different opportunities we have, et cetera, et cetera. So go to vetrep.org, scroll down, and sign up for the literary blog today. We're almost at 1,000 subscribers. So please, subscribe. Keep it going. Be part of the cool kids. We'd love to have you. Okay, I need to thank this episode's producer, Mike Neal, for doing a great job cleaning up a lot of little blips and all that this week. And... um think that's it i'm christopher paul meyer my thanks again to mike schropp and on behalf of everyone at havoc journal see you next time for another profile in havoc <laughs>